Good morning and welcome to the uh, Blue Ridge Church once again. Uh, to all, everyone visiting today, for those who are not visiting, um, anyone uh, who's been around for a bit or coming for the first time, welcome to service. Also, uh, Dan's visiting from Kuwait right there on, uh, on Jacob's phone. So, hey Dan, good to see you. Everyone say hi to Dan. It's like uh, 8 p.m. in Kuwait, I think, right now, or something like that. Um, so, welcome, Dan. Welcome to church. You made it all the way across the world, which is nice. Uh, and he's, he's on time. Wow. Perhaps, anyway, I won't make the joke. It's too easy. It's too easy. I can't do that. Genesis 19, verse 1 is where we'll start. We left off here with Abraham having three mysterious visitors in Genesis 18. They have an unexpected meal together uh, until Abraham realizes these are not your ordinary men. Uh, They have a specific divine purpose. They're not just there to have a meal, but they're on their way to do something. Abraham realizes this and he has a discussion with one of them, um, who's really a representation of Yahweh or God. And they go back and forth and they basically come down to this, this, it looks like haggling, but really they're going back and forth on God, will you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there are a few righteous people? And so Abraham's struggling with this idea that you can't punish the righteous for something that's not their fault. Like, if there's a few righteous people there, will you spare everyone? And God says, yeah, there's only 10. Yeah, I will spare everyone. And so God is, is obviously eager to give compassion, eager to give mercy, but he's also a God of justice, a God who cannot turn the other cheek, turn, the, uh, turn a blind eye, rather, to the outcry. That's the reason he's come down is that he's heard the outcry of the oppressed and a God who is both one of love, but also a God of justice um, is, is there to do both things. Like, like any parent who sees a kid needs justice, but obviously they want what's best for the kid. Uh, there's who that struggle with God. And so the other two angels then go on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah for really part two of what we talked about last week was part one, part two of this, this 24 hour scene in Abraham's life. And it begins in verse one. It says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baked bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them what you like. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. Now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back in the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry, there it is again, the outcry 
to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is going to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot and saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his arm and, and, and the hands of his wife and the two daughters and they led them out safely of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of, the, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. It's small. Let me first flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? it then my life, my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew the cities of the entire plain, destroying all the living things in the cities and all the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like a smoke of a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Now Lot had two daughters left, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger daughter, our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine, then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father drunk with wine the older daughter went in to sleep with him. He was not aware of when she came in or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger daughter, last night, I slept with father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight. And you go in and sleep with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. And he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son. She named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. Whew. People who don't know or have ever read the Bible know about this chapter. They know about Sodom and Gomorrah. They're very aware of what happens in this uh, situation with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's a very dark chapter, uh, like moments in Genesis where you kind of are a bit, a bit amazed by, by what's going on. But praise God that we have a Bible that talks about real stuff and real life and not just all the the sugar coating of the world. But here we have a a really uh, a city that's really reached its full descent of depravity. That it, It cannot get much worse. And as the angels go down to inspect, is Sodom really that bad? They find out really quickly. Yeah, it is. Um, It is just as bad as we thought. And Abraham's whole intervention of what if there's 10, you know, I, the angels realized really quickly there's, there may not even be one here in this whole city. And so they come down to, to bring destruction. 
So as we read Genesis 19, we get this sense that things are about to break, that the tension is about to break, that as Abraham uh, pleads with God, there's some hope building. There's some hope that maybe there's 10 people. And we talked last week about why does Abraham stop at 10? He says, God, if there's 50 people, will you save it? How about 40, 30, 20, 10? Uh, you know, how about, and he stops at 10. He doesn't go to one. He stops at 10. And we talked about maybe why Abraham doesn't go down to one. But maybe, Abra- or maybe Abraham's thinking, well, Lot's family. I, have, I know Lot's family. They'll, they'll be righteous. It's my nephew. It's my family. They'll, they'll make it. So as long as I can guarantee from God that, okay, God, if there's 10 righteous people, you'll spare it? Yeah, deal. Okay, well, I think we'll be okay. But as we realize, Lot's family is not where Abraham thought they were. And neither was Lot. And uh, my first point is not a lot to be desired. And it's a really interesting story. It's actually a parallel. It's a mirror of what just happened, right? Three men are walking by in chapter 18, and Abraham begs them to stay. Some men are going through Sodom, and Lot begs them to stay. We have uncle and nephew here. They make a big meal. They make a big meal. We kind of get to actually contrast Abraham and his nephew. How do they respond to these different situations? Abraham becomes aware that these are not really just men. It seems like Lot is very unaware that these are not just men for a long time in the story. But Lot, he's interesting, isn't he? And I don't know what your sense of Lot is. For my whole life, I've kind of struggled with who is this guy? He's kind of like a figure similar to um, King Saul. It's kind of like he's very complicated. And I've always really liked complicated characters. I always joke with my wife whenever we watch a movie. uh, She's like, my favorite character is this. She always likes the hero. I've always loved the villains in movies. And and she's she's always kind of amazed by that and kind of scared by that. But... (laughs) I always like the villains because the villains are complicated. They're, they're layered. They're, they're not just flat out. They weren't born evil. Something happened to them. Same reason for a superhero, right? Something went down in your past to kind of make you the way that you are. Not everything's so black and white. There's some layers here. There's some complications, right? And so, like, you know, a lot of us, like the great villain Darth Vader, right? He's very complicated. He's, got, he's not all evil, and his, obviously his, his son fights for the, for the good in him. Um, in the, 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 the movies that are, uh, in the, you know, the old movies, uh, not, none of the recent ones, but in those, in those old ones, the, the, the beautiful, that, that beautiful complication. And lots of complicated character because at first he seems pretty good. Where is he sitting? In the gate of the city. Actually, Jenny and I were in uh, Israel a couple years ago and uh, we went to Dan, which is a region in North Israel, where they actually uncovered the gate of the city. And there's actually little, uh, little seats there where the, uh, the leaders would sit. So you're, the first people you meet when you walk into a city are the elders or the leaders. So here's Lot, and by, by himself, by the way, at the, the gate of the city. So he's apparently a leader of some kind. Uh, he's respectable. He says he's really hospitable. He's actually maybe even more hospitable than, than his, his uncle Abraham was. So he invites these men in, and then it gets really bad really quick. And we, we realize what's going on here in the city of Sodom um, is, is rampant homosexuality, really, what's going on. Um, and so they, they come to the door and there's a lot there. There's violence. There's, there's, there's the, this, this deviant sexuality on all, in all cases. And so what he's, what he's trying to do, uh, and actually I do want to, just a small disclaimer, especially in a world today where we're trying to figure out what, what is God's view on sexuality and gender. Uh, you know, God's hope for us is not for all of us to be straight. God's hope for all of us is for all of us to be holy. Yeah. And so wherever you are, whatever attractions you have or whatever, whatever, you got going on in your heart, it's not about trying to fix you or, or make you into a straight person that can be this Christian. No, no, no. It's about 
taking your desires and putting them at the foot of the cross. Yeah. That's all it's about. One of, my, one of my best friends in the world, one of my heroes in the faith, it's my, one of my best friends from, um, when I, with whom I went to school, and he's same-sex attracted. And he's told me all about his life, and he opened my eyes a lot to that struggle. And he, to this day, he, he mentors and he counsels young men with the same, same struggle. And he's helped, that, he's helped so many all over the world. And so, you know, small disclaimer, but here what we have is a city where it seems like, and it's going to get more ex, uh, exposed throughout the chapter, obviously God is not present. The, the thought of what would be godly or what would be right is not here in the city of Sodom. And so they come to the door and it gets bad. They want to do this awful thing with, with Lot's visitors. And Lot does something incredible. Um, and even in a moment where the first thing Lot does, and today's going to be a lot of C's. I have like, actually for those playing at home, you can count all the C's. I don't, I don't, I don't know how many, maybe it's six or seven or eight. I'm not sure. But the first C is compromise. The first thing Lot does is he tries to compromise. When they offer this horrible sexual this, you know, decision or they, this thing they want to do, this sin, he doesn't say that's wrong or we're men of God or we're, we're, we're people of God. We should not do that. He doesn't appeal to what's right or wrong. He tries, he tries to compromise with this apparent lesser sin, which is just as horrible, just as abhorrent, which is to offer his daughters to kind of fulfill this, this desire they have. Which is, just, which is just horrible. But it's the, it's the first thing out of Lot's mouth. Now, a little bit of backstory. Lot chose to live here. Remember back in Genesis? They separated. Abraham goes and lives somewhere else. Lot chooses to live here. Why would Lot why, choose to live here of all places? And we begin to see it. And we can even ask ourselves, maybe last time Abraham knew Lot, he was a really godly man. But after living in a worldly place, after being surrounded by worldliness for so long you change and we realize how could a guy like lot who has convictions get to a place like this well now we have our first clue he's a compromiser here take that horrible sin let's do a little bit of a less of a sin and when you compromise the standards of god you slowly find yourself compromised it's just it's all just about uh, uh, subjective pr- opinion the thing that he offers is no less evil than what they want to do. It's horrible. But in his mind, it's somehow better. You can see that Lot's perspective is he's deceived. And he's got a worldly paradigm now. And he's lost. That's the first C we see. Yeah, the first C we see. There you go. Sounded wrong coming out of my mouth, but it's right. Why? What happened to Lot? Why, why, is, why is Lot not able to stand up to the city of Sodom? Why isn't he this great example that we should follow? Um, the second C that we see uh, is, um, if you noticed, uh, as they're leaving, um, he, even before as they're leaving, by the way, he goes to his sons-in-law and tries to ask them to leave. When, what'd they do? You remember what they did? They, they think he's joking. They don't take their father-in-law or their soon-to-be father-in-law seriously. And that's not good. If you're a a person of integrity and people don't take you seriously. Maybe he was always joking. I've struggled with that in the past. Always joking. So no one knows when to take you seriously. Maybe they think, oh, he's always joking. He's always, yeah, I never take him seriously. Well, that's a problem when you need to be taken seriously. So the sons-in-law don't want to come. Now, what's interesting, if you notice, he goes, you guys, we got to leave. Come on, sons-in-law. And then the angels are like, well, we got to go. And he hesitates. He calls others to do 
what he himself cannot do. Oh my goodness, I'm starting to like feel the chills of, starting to, uh, I don't even have to really click and drag to like the here and now of today, but I think you're starting to feel that a lot of us are a lot. Yeah. A lot of us are a lot. We, we, we compromise and, and, and we call others, you got to go to church, you got to love God, you got to pray, you got to read your Bible. We can't do it. We struggle to actually do what we call others to do. The great challenge of, of Christianity in our, in our country is hypocrisy, the hypocrites, the judgmental hypocrites. Well, that, there's a lot. And he hesitates. And so it literally says the angels twisted his arm. They, they pull him out. They grab him. They get him to run. Uh, the, but the next C is he's critical. He was just saved from certain death by angels who give an escape route. And he criticizes the escape route. We got to go. You got to go to the mountains a lot. Go to the mountains. Um, hey, angels. That's not going to work for me. The mountains are kind of harsh and they're kind of intense. Now, remember why he chose Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did Lot choose to uh, live in Sodom and Gomorrah? Luxury. Comfortability. Ease. Right? Oh, it's happening again to us, right? Oh, how many decisions do we make as Christians because it was easy? It was comfortable. I dated her because she was, it's just, it, it made sense. I took that job because it paid more. I took that house because it was more comfortable. We live in a world that prioritizes those things. And now, as he's about to die, he's just been saved. He's not grateful. He's criticizing the plan. I, I can feel that for even myself when, you know, like, when you study the Bible to really become a Christian and commit to being a Christian, you ever, like, criticize, like, why would God want me to be baptized? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why would God want me to repent? Why that sin? Is that, is that really sexual immorality? That's kind of a gray area, right? I mean, who says I have to be at church? Who, who you know, we, we start criticizing the plan when salvation's right there at our, at our fingertips. And so we have that same struggle. We are a lot. We have that same struggle of like this beautiful thing, this buffet is right there, but we're going, I don't know, the buffet, it could be a little better of a buffet. It could be, I'm not really loving the way that the church, the, you know, that could have been better. Um, and we get critical, whether we're in the church or we're visiting for the first time. We have a critical heart toward a lot of things. And, it, and we're going to see, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. Hold on for that one. And then the last thing that happens, the last C is he's calloused. He's calloused. He's hardened. If the, if the Sodom story wasn't, Gut-wrenching enough. We have this. It gets worse after. This horrible. Why is it in the Bible? And I think it's in the Bible for a reason. It's this horrible story. Where Lot, earlier in the story, offers up his daughters to save his own skin. To get what he wants. And his daughters decide to offer up Lot to get what they want. And back then, in ancient times... Children were a massive deal. I mean, it was just the most important thing to an ancient woman to have a kid. It was, we can't even fathom. I mean, it's a big deal now, but back then, I mean, massive. And so they thought, who cares about the way we do it? The ends justifies the means. Just go ahead and get what we want. And it's not like you, they had a kid the next day. I mean, there was nine months, right? But a lot. We don't have any response from Lot. And we never hear of Lot again in Genesis from this point on. So what's the point? What's the point of this awful 24 hours in the life of Abraham? I think Lot's heart heart was hardened. 
I think he had a calloused heart. Even what his daughters do, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't, at no point in the story is he, does he seem to be indignant or cut to the heart about any of this. And the scary thing about when our convictions begin to slide is that our heart gets hard. And we, and we just get used to it. We just become comfortable with it. And that can happen on a micro scale in your life. It can happen as a city of Charlottesville. It can happen as a country. It can happen as mankind, person kind, right? Humankind. It, it can happen as a whole. We just begin to, it's just normal now. And things are changing faster today than they ever have. People today can honestly say that they grew up, you know, they're older than me, can honestly say, I lived in a different world. You know, 100 years ago, if we just were set back 100 years, you know, really no commercial airlines. People are still using horse and wagon. I mean, rail, railroads are the way to go. I mean, it's just like, it's, a diff, it's changed a lot, and the world is changing quick. And there's a new cultural norm every day, really. And it, it can be quite exhausting for a lot of people. But what do we do? What's the point of all this? What, are we, what am I getting at? And I want to talk about this idea that Abraham believed that there were 10 righteous people in Sodom. Abraham thought, you know what? My, my nephew Lot and his family are going to be okay. They're going to be righteous. So what happened to them? How did Lot get daughters who thought like that? How did Lot get a wife who looked back with great longing at the city of sin, who missed it? That word in Hebrew is she looked back and desired. She longed for the city of Sodom. His wife longed for the city. She loved the sin. Lot, supposedly the righteous guy, is hesitating and he's hypocritical and he's offering up his daughters. And how did it get to this place? And it's really just about one thing, and that's the pressure of culture. It's the pressure of culture. Culture is so powerful. Culture has the power to, to undo everything a parent does. Culture has the power to undo everything a teacher does. Culture has the power to change what you think is right and wrong. So much of what you believe is right and wrong is dependent on where you were born, what school you went to, whether you were homeschooled, what friends you have. Culture is so powerful. Culture and scientists have done a lot of, of research on this. This isn't just, you know, something we, we can know uh, instinctively, which is it's true. We know it. But scientists have, have learned a lot about the power of culture. And there's this uh, book I've been reading. I uh, actually just finished it. It's called Sapiens. You might have read it by uh, Yuval Harari. Uh, but uh, he's by no means a Christian guy. Um, probably the opposite, actually. But he has some research in here about something he's noticed recently about Western culture. And he talks about Western culture being more and more individualistic. Um, and maybe before I read, I have a little bit of an analogy. Um, you know, it's hard to, to maintain culture. And as all of us in this room strives really to maintain culture, to basically... To have a certain right and wrong val- have right and wrong values within your family that are different from the world, that's difficult. To have right and wrong values in your in this church that are different from the world is difficult because they're not going to like it. They're going to shame you. They're going to make fun of you. I've, I've recently I was even talking to somebody where you, I mean it's usually a point of like honor for me, but where I, I told somebody that when I got married I was a virgin when I got married. In fact, we're even going to be honestly honestly honest. I never kissed a girl for my wife, okay, at the wedding day, right? But I, as I told this couple this, I felt embarrassed by the way they looked at me. I felt ashamed for that. I felt embarrassed. And I was like, I'm now feeling embarrassed for not having sex? 
where and I, but it was real and it was weird and i thought that's culture that's I'm feeling it. It's real. And I, and I began thinking, maybe I should have, you know, and you go back and what are you doing, Drew? That was just one 10 second interaction. But it has an effect on us. And we have a world that's becoming more and more individual. And uh, Harari writes this about the importance of culture and community. He says, family and community seem to have more impact on our happiness. This was a study on happiness, which is not something necessarily Christians should aim for, but we'll, we'll hang with it. Family and community seem to have more impact on our happiness than money and wealth and health, actually. Money and health. People with strong families who live in tight-knit and supportive communities are significantly happier than those people whose families are dysfunctional and who have never found or sought a community to be a part of. Marriage is particularly important. Repeated studies have found that there is a very close correlation between good marriages and highly subjective well-being, between bad marriages and misery. This holds true irrespective of economic or even physical conditions. A poor cripple surrounded by a loving spouse, devoted family, and a warm community may well feel better than an alienated billionaire, provided that the poor cripple's poverty is not too severe and that his illness is not degenerative or painful. This raises the possibility that the immense improvement in material conditions over the last 200 years in our country was offset. Was offset by the collapse of the family and community. He goes on to say that people in 1800 seemed to be happier or just as happy as we are today. But they had way less and died way sooner and were way less healthy. But he talks about scientists are going back to back there, just going back to this idea that people need community. People need it. And in a world that says you don't need it, people are realizing I do need it. That's why we see a rise in gym membership so people can be part of workout classes. It's a little micro community. People don't want to work out alone as much. You see people in these classes, they love it. It's like a little, it's a little village there at the workout place. It's like, that's, that's Jill, she's in charge of this, and that's Nancy, and, she, and so everyone's got this, like, this group. It's a very tight-knit group. I've been, I've been brought in as an outsider to that group a few times by my wife, and I'm trying to gain access to the community. Um, I'm like, I'm, like a, I'm like a foreigner in that, in that land, like, like Lot was at first. But, but it's interesting. When you're trying to be this community, let's say you're an ice cube, right? You're an ice cube. You, you, know, you know you're an ice cube. You've got your definitions. You're a cube. You know, you, you got your stuff going on. Now, if you put that ice cube in tea, in hot tea, we all know what will happen. The ice cube, it will eventually become part of the liquid. It will eventually become... We'll reach homeostasis, right? So how does a micro-community last? How does a community of believers in a world that is increasingly going away from the Bible, how do we actually live as a community? And how did Lot fail to? We saw that he, was, he compromised. That was the first, one of the first mistakes he made, right? He was critical, one of the second, the second mistake he made. But I began thinking about this actually at a birthday party for a little girl yesterday. So Aaron Taylor had her birthday party, uh, which is awesome. And all the kids went swimming in this river. And we asked the kids afterwards, how, how was the swimming? It was a lot of fun. And they go, yeah, there were little pockets of, of cool water here. It was really refreshing. I, the whole, you know, it kind of felt like randomly stumbling upon some different pockets of cool water. And I began thinking about that. And I thought, what is it, how, how is that cool water able to maintain that micro community? You know, how is it able, in, with all of this water around it that is so warm, how did that cool water do it? How did it... And then people that walked through were like, that was nice. That was a little cool burst. Of, but how did it, I thought it was supposed to just 
find homeostasis. I thought we're all just going to get sucked into culture. Well, the way it works, I'm, now help me, Aaron Stevens, okay? I'm, I'm venturing into unknown territory here. I'm a historian. I'm not, I'm not a science guy, okay? But I'm pretty sure this is the way it works, okay? So you've got ice, you've got liquid, you've got gas on the far right there. You're far right. The, the particles on the, on the, in the gas are very hot and they're, go, they're very spread apart. You might say that it's like they're very individualistic. They're very on their own. They're very, all right, I'm kind of hot. I'm doing my thing. So they're individualistic. They're spread out. They're like, I don't need people. I don't need you invading my life. I don't need accountability. I don't need your judgment. I'm going to be fine on my own. All right. And then we have the tight knit ice with the tight knit community where the articles or the, the particles rather are closer together. They're more dense. Now, density is difficult in a community. It requires a few things. But what's oh, got ahead of myself. But what's amazing about the, this, the, the water in, is that uh, when it's colder, it's denser. So dense, things that are denser sink. So in, in the river, what kids were finding is that the water at the bottom was cool at points. Because the water actually stuck together because it was more dense. So the density actually kept it together. One of the most difficult things about Christianity today is community. Is being together. Because density sounds all well and good until you're up next, next to Edison Relay. Like, he's really close right now. And he's great. And, but, you know, he's, and Edison's thinking, Drew's great, but he's right. Drew's up in my business right now. And density's really all well and good until you get invasive, until you have to start talking about things like sin. Until you got to start talking about how your marriage is doing. Until you got to start talking about finances. Ooh, please. About how, how you prioritize your money. About, about your... Dis- all these things, they're all well and good. You know, church is like, let's go into church. Let's shake hands. Nice to meet you. It's all about, it's all about uh, acquaintances. You have a, 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 we're not trying, let's not, not, let's not be a church. Let's be a community. Yeah. Let's be a dense, a concentrated community of Christians. There's more, there's more C's there. A concentrated community of Christians to be able to withstand the inevitable pressure of the world. David A. De Silva says, you can always tell when someone's going to fall away from the faith. Because it always has to do with pressure applied by the world. When the, and he says, it's kind of an equation, actually. He says, when the pressure of the world is greater than the bonds of friendship in the church, they will fall away. When the pressure of the world is greater than the bonds of community, they will fall away. Every time. How are our bonds? How are your friendships? And it's really easy to go, no one's my friend. No one likes me. No one likes my sports. No one likes croquet. I love croquet. No one will play croquet with me. Everyone's too musical. Everyone's not musical enough. Everyone's tall. Everyone's short. Everyone doesn't look like me. Everyone looks different than me. I don't, we have all these reasons why people are not our friends. But it's interesting. I, I don't want to walk away today thinking, let's go be a community because that's just what every other business and every other group organization is saying out there. It's about what kind of community we will be. And if you notice, the last time there was a big uh, annihilation in the book of Genesis, who was it? It was the flood. Now remember, why was Noah saved in the flood? Anybody remember? He was righteous. He walked like the Lord did. He was saved because of his righteousness in a lot of ways. It's obedience. Now, it says in that passage, God remembered Noah. So he saves his family. Now, here it doesn't say God remembered Lot. It says God remembered Abraham. That's a beautiful, incredible, amazing thing. That's grace. Lot did not deserve to be saved. 
Lot's family. They were not righteous. But we actually see here that Lot, in all of his sin, and even more amazing, you know, if, if God knew, and I'm sure he does know, that Lot, even, at, even the story after Sodom and Gomorrah, that, it's, that Lot's never going to change. That Lot's never going to seek God. That Lot, his family is, they're not going to respond to the call of grace. God didn't, it wasn't, grace is not uh, a contractual agreement. Grace is not, I'll save Lot if he gets his act together. If his daughters, at least his grandkids, kind of figure it out. Uh, sorry, his grandkids are the Moabites and the Ammonites. Read the Old Testament. No bueno for the most part. But that's what grace is. That Abraham actually intercedes for someone who does not deserve it. Abraham prays. He begs. He, he intercedes for someone who does not deserve it. And God shows favor. Now, Abraham is awesome, but Abraham is also messed up. He has lots of sin. And Abraham did not have the guts to ask God, God, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there is one righteous person? He didn't have that one righteous person. He knew Lot couldn't do it. But we have Jesus. We have the one. We have Jesus who knew. Jesus knew just like God did. Jesus is like, I'm going to die. I'm not just going to live the life you should have lived. I'm going to die the death you should have died. And you have every opportunity to walk out of here and say, no, thank you. I will go back to my life of living the way I want to live. I will go back to doing what I want to do. Or even better, I'll stick around church and kind of do what I want to do. And then when I don't want to do, I just I'll do whatever I want to do over here. God knows God did not die for you because he knew you'd follow him. That's not, it's not a unconditional love. I've never heard of a love like this. God died for you with no guarantees. And that is a grace that should fling our eyes open, should wake us up to the garbage out there and sometimes to the garbage in here to be able to say, just like Chanel did, I do not get my worth from people. I get my worth from God. How do I know? Because he died for me with no obligation. That is a love that overrides any kind of love out there. Sometimes I see the LGBTQ shirts that say love is love. You see that slogan. And I always think, I always think about, yeah, it's all, it's all romantic. It's still not unconditional. LGBTQ love is still in their perception romantic, which doesn't even touch godly love. Agape love is unconditional. No matter where you are, what you're doing, what you've done, you have a chance to be able to enter into that relationship with Jesus. That's the kind of community it creates. Because let me say what that does. What does that do? When you see God that way, what are you able to do? Something that's really rare out there, you're able to forgive. Something that's really rare out there, you're able to actually be friends with people who don't have much in common with you. That's weird. It's unusual. You're able to pray together. You're able to go on encouragement dates with no and no impure motive. It's not all the dating apps out there have one motive. It's to end up at home with that person. Right? Mostly. Encouragement dates the singles go on is about encouraging. It's about being a friend. It's about asking, how are your quiet times? How is your how's your prayer been? In marriage, you're able to say, I'm gonna love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. I'm going to respect my husband. I'm going to submit. Oh, gosh, we hate that one. I'm going to submit. When you have a community of people, a community of teenagers who at high school are more concerned about what God thinks is right than what their friends are doing, 
That's, that's a light. That's different. People go, hold on. We're going to do this thing. And they go, I ain't doing that. Why not? That's not what God would want me to do. That's weird. Tell me more about this God guy. What, is, what does he want us to do? It's very clear. Let me show you. Culture can wear us down. When I joined a fraternity in college, the first month I said no to everything. I said no to the parties, no to the hazing, no to all that stuff. Asked me again eight months later, the end of my freshman year. They wore me down. They wore me down, and I was not the same guy. And amen, there were a lot, of, a lot of things I was still saying no to. But in some very big areas, but personal purity, some areas of even my mouth. I started, even, I, started I hadn't cussed in years. started cussing again. I thought, how did I, how did I, just surrounded by it. Your community has an impact on you. When you live with 65 guys who are doing the same thing every night, no matter how awesome you think you are. God did not call us to live individual Christian lives. He called us to be a church. We need each other. So when someone walks through Charlottesville and go, man, this is a warm river. They go, what was that nice little, oh, that's so cool over there. That's nice. What is that? Oh, it's the Blue Ridge Church. That little cool pocket. That little cool spot in the water. And as Abraham looks over the horizon and sees that nobody made it. uh, That nobody made it. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that Lot got out. The question is, can we be a community of Christ? In doing that, we will not have to worry about, let's go out and evangelize. We will evangelize. You don't have to worry about, let's go be pure. You'll be pure. Let's go forgive. You'll forgive. If you simply understand grace. Now, I know we struggle with it, but if we get grace, everything is easy. And people go, there's something different about that community. There's something different about that church. I'll tell you what it is. It's Christ. And Christ in every generation, he is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. Christ will always stand out in culture because Christ is not in culture. He is above culture. Let's be a community. Let's be a concentrated community of Christ. We can be two little cool spots in the water. I added Harrisonburg up there, you know, upper left. Two little cool spots in the water of dense, of concentrated Christians who don't have it all together, who haven't figured it out, who are not perfect, but they love God and they love one another. Amen. It's got to be the glory.